Are we on? We're on, right? Okay. Um, hi, everybody. My name is Amy Mungo. I'm the moderator for the next hour with y'all. Is we? Yes, I just did say y'all. I'm not. I don't live in New York. Um, as we're going to discuss lean design with my new friends up here, um, but I wanted to explain how it's going to work because we're going for full audience participation. We want we want to have a supply and demand problem here at the end of the hour. So the way Fishbowl works is I am going to propose four topics that we're going to get through in about 30 minutes as a panel. I want you all paying attention, taking notes, coming up with really pithy good questions. At the end of that 30 minutes, I hope to have a nice line of you all right here waiting to come up on stage and take my seat to ask the question to the panelists. And then I'm going to let you interact for a few minutes, and then I'm going to take the next participant. So I will invite you up, but then I will also kick you out. Does that make sense? All right, we've done this before. It's super interactive. Don't be nervous. If I can get up here and do this, you can too. So any question is a good question, and I'll let you know when it's time to come on up. Sound good? All right, let's get started. Um, we did a dress rehearsal upstairs just now, and there's a lot to talk about, and we're pretty passionate about it. So instead of taking our five minutes for personal intros, we're going to kind of like let the intros happen as we talk about our work. But I am not going to talk about my work, so I'm going to give you my 30 seconds. Um, I'm a digital product native. I've been in startups since the first bubble here in New York in 99, kind of my, uh, dating myself. I've done both startups and I've done Fortune 100s, from strategy consulting through digital product management. Um, most recently, I left Capital One this fall, um, really, really great terms, um, and joined an innovation and growth company. So get to go back and service into those large enterprise organizations again. Uh, but that's a little bit about me. I am going to start here as, um, hold on, I lost a note. I'm going to briefly introduce our panelists, and then we're going to jump right into it. So to my right is Ken Schistemus from GE. Uh, he is the director of UX on the Pritik system. Am I saying that correctly? To his right is Courtney Hemphill from Carbon5. She's a partner and a tech lead. She recently moved to New York about a year ago to open up the New York office for Carbon5. So welcome, Courtney. And then we have another Amy on the panel, Amy Newman, the Director of Experience Design with Autodesk. And I want to point out that Amy's a bit of, a, of an anomaly these days. She has been at only two companies in her professional life. She really likes finding companies that she can identify with the mission and just dig in and stay there and make it work for herself. And I like to celebrate that because there's so many of us that kind of have moved around a lot. So I thought it was really cool to point that out. All right, without further ado, we are going to establish the vocabulary for this session right now. What is a design system? We're going to talk about the history, the terminology, and a little bit of implementation. And Courtney's going to kick us off. Thank you. Um, and thank you all for coming and sort of being interested in this session. A um, little tiny bit more background on myself. Uh, my background actually is a as a developer. So tech lead inevitably means I am contributing to a code base. So my interest in this as sort of a, a function is I'm not a designer, I'm not on the stage to talk design. However, I am really interested in efficiencies around process. So for me, I come from an Agile XP background. I sort of saw how DevOps optimized really the delivery cycle for software teams. And it was interesting for me to see where the inefficiencies started to hit the rest of the organizations. And where I saw one of the big blockages was within design um, and also inevitably with product. So something that interests me within design systems is sort of this notion of, we created a really productive system with test-driven development, DevOps deployments to enhance the quality, consistency, and reliability of deployments and doing them more frequently. However, we weren't necessarily doing the same thing when we were thinking about the design of it. So can we deliver on higher quality 
faster products, features that are designed and the, the quality of that goes across sort of all of the different products within these companies that we work with. So my interest in here of what a system looks like is we have, you know, engineering systems that we have made very effective and you see this now represented. I'm sure all of you guys know that cloud is a thing and it's becoming more of a thing. How can we use sort of the learnings that we have in test-driven development, test, build, deliver, learn, cycle it back, and really bring sort of foundational systems to make the quality and consistency and reliability of the design as influential as the DevOps system has been in delivering software faster to customers. Um, so that's sort of like where the design system vocabulary has entered my world and where my interest is in it. And I'd also say, you know, one of the, the really core components that we see as being faster to market for companies from two people all the way up to, you know, thousands is, is how do you integrate design, development, and product. So those are sort of the three pillars that we see. And so as a company, as Carbon5, you know, we started off heavy lifting systems with, you know, working with like Schwab and these big companies and, you know, really on the infrastructure and data side and sort of the core systems. But now seeing that those core systems really do have to like hit the road at some point. They have to get out to the customer at some point. And so how do we develop systems? How do we start thinking about things like design thinking, things like lean startup? And then how do those methodologies really manage to coalesce with the Agile XP delivery process and DevOps? So people have said design systems is a thing, design ops is another thing I've heard about, but ultimately like what are the ways that we can componentize and compartmentalize design to where it can be utilized across many different products within a large company's pipeline? Um, so that's sort of like how I kind of understand it, but clearly I'm coming from a development side of yeah. things, so. And Amy, you've kind of run the gamut of, of all this vocabulary. I like for you yes. to weigh in right now. Yeah, so I manage a team that's made up about uh, over 40 people that's part of a centralized design organization that has over 80 people. And so we started over five years ago trying to think about how we could um, drive more innovation in such a large company that has eight or 9,000 employees. And so we went a couple of stakeholders Speaking of your triad, uh, we had leadership, myself from design, somebody from product, and somebody from development, and we did a lean startup workshop for a weekend in San Francisco. Um, we hung out in some very hot, unair conditioned uh, <laughs> office for the weekend and, and really learned, relearned how to innovate in a different way. We all thought we knew what we were doing. And some of the key takeaways for me were things about not only just getting out of the office a little bit more, but doing that in a way that feels unstructured. You know, as you work in a larger company, structure becomes part of your process, and how do you actually break some of those um, norms and actually challenge yourself to get unconventional, get out of the building, and try and figure out how you can pivot more quickly. So that was um, really exciting for us, and we started to try and bring that culture back into the company. And then we evolved it even further to the design thinking uh, pillar and said, how do we actually change and sort of democratize design within the company? Because it really, we need to bridge that gap across those roles and responsibilities. Um, if we just isolate designers as sort of this waterfall where then it gets designed, nothing is ever going to happen. We all are creative. Anybody who affects change, whether it's a process, a product, a meeting, you're a designer. And so how do we change how the company operates? And so we brought in a company called Luma um, that pulled together a set of design thinking methodologies. They teach this um, out in the world. And we said, how do we bring that in-house? So we trained um, people like myself 
to actually become instructors in the Luma methods of design thinking, and we are rolling that out now across the entire company, from sales all the way to the back end, to architects, to product, any individual contributor, all the way up to the CEO. And we are in the process of, of rolling this out. I'm going to Switzerland at the end of the month to teach a, another class. It's ex super exciting, because it's actually transforming the way we work. It actually levels the playing field. One of the speakers earlier talked about how you've got that hippo, the highest paid person's opinion in the room, and how do they d sort of uh, dominate sometimes the kind of conversations that happen. And through Luma, we were able to kind of level that playing field and create a more democratized design uh, experience across the whole company, which makes us all better and more innovative. And then we've also really tried to look deeper within the design system itself around what does it mean to be one Autodesk, right? Autodesk was built it's, um, usually by uh, inheriting companies, by acquisition. We've got over 150 products. Um, it's, it is very diverse and it used to celebrate its individuality, but yet out in the world, people are using these products interchangeably and they're using them together, but they don't feel like they're part of the same company. And so we show our seams all the time to our customers. And so we needed to figure out a way through a HIG, which is a human interface guideline, to kind of develop a HIG that would actually work to build a more, um, uh, a better pattern library, better design process across the company. We tried many times and failed. This time, however, we're building something that's more anchored in code. And so this is a way for us to, to kind of bridge together design and development to bring those two disciplines closer so that we can actually code those patterns from a stateless all the way to something that's fully robust and integrated into like a web product and have that be the way that you can inherit and adopt a pattern. It promotes reuse across the development organization and really gets the right design um, uh, pattern library and thinking out across the company in a way that represents the company. Ken, I'd like you to jump in with some of your examples. I failed to mention that Ken is only six months new at GE, where he previously was with Salesforce. So he might be going back and forth between those two examples with us today. Yeah, I've been, I've been fortunate to uh, work on two large-scale enterprise design systems. Um, and kind of what you're talking about with the, the triad, right? When we did Lightning, are there any Salesforce users out here? One, two, come on, more than that, right? Uh, and we just so we launched Lightning recently, or last year, which is a complete redesign of Salesforce. And the way that started early on was with that triad of folks, you know, sketching, drawing, getting out there, interviewing users, you know, iterating. Um, and, the, and the small team kind of got the initial pass going for that. And as we got down the road, um, and we got our workflows kind of down, and it was all geared around, you know, sales workflows. That's kind of the bread and butter of Salesforce. Um, then we broadened it out to the larger team. But along the way, the design system sort of evolved. There was a notion of a, of a style guide for mobile, but they weren't you know, something you had to go look at, and it was static. Um, so mentioning the code, like that's what makes a design system a design system, right? So at, at, and what I'm working on now at GE is, is different than what we had at Salesforce. At Salesforce, it's, it's just CSS and HTML, and it was kind of agnostic as to what said, said below it. And I worked for the organization, and I kind of had that same mentality when I went into to GE, and I was like, okay, I'll just do the same thing I did at Salesforce, right? Well, it turns out across like all the groups there, you can imagine, you know, Predix is the platform that, um, you know, the industrial internet sits on. So big turbine, wind turbines, or power turbines, or aviation, you know, jet engines, all that sort of stuff. How you're metering those things, how you're measuring them, how you're maintaining them. You know, our design system has to support that. So all those use cases are, are crazy across the board. Sometimes it's a touch screen that you walk up to in a plant. Sometimes it's a you know big monitoring 
you know, with the four by eight screens in front of you. Sometimes it's a laptop out in the field. So it's a really different design system, but it's, and it's built technically different also to where it's all wrapped up in, in web components via Google's Polymer. Uh, but again, the code is critical there to where you can go in and, you know, we're, we're also writing design guidelines so people know how to assemble the stuff and, and getting the teams together across it, you know, initially you'd be like, well, what could be the same across them? Um, it turns out there's a lot of similarities. So we got everybody together. We kind of have you know consensus around the patterns and that sort of stuff, and they can go into the, the design system and, and grab the code and uh, put things together. So uh, it's driving consistency along with the you know other elements you mentioned. Great, thank you. And at the heart of every design system, right, are the humans that are innovating around it and coming up with it and achieving consensus in one way or another. We've been talking a lot about consensus today. I loved how uh, Mark said earlier, consensus means parallelization and any 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 recovering people from that. Consensus and parallelization. Okay, I'm with you. But you know, we're talking about enterprise organizations. We're talking about very large organizations, and these these systems enable innovation and they enable risk taking. But we're still humans at the core of that. Um, would love to hear from you all. And I think I, I actually want to throw back to Ken actually about experimentation. There has to be a lens for risk. Mm -hmm. But we we had a huge conversation about how middle management gets so risk adverse. We hear from our SVPC suite. Yes, 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 all my teams are autonomous and they, they're, they're you're empowered to take risk. But there's something that's happening at middle management. So how do you um, empower experimentation knowing that teams are still managing risk? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it's especially interesting at GE where, you know, maybe you don't want to take a lot of risk when you're rolling stuff out the power plants. So you've got to keep the lights on, right? <laughs> so um, we try to do a lot of that up front. And I, I personally, I love to gather folks, right? So I will go get people together for a workshop to get the ideas out early and you know and we begin with pen and paper and sketch this stuff out and test it before you even write a line of code so you can get out there. So you do, you know, that say you can float the idea upstairs to the bosses or out to the users and that sort of stuff. And the risk is pretty minimal at that point. And you know, I learned a lot of that stuff, kind of that process at, at Salesforce when we did it too. And um, it's a little bit easier there because you know both places Salesforce does uh, Salesforce does releases three times a year, GE were quarterly. Um, and you know, at Salesforce we had beta programs and that sort of stuff to test out new things. Like when we did Lightning, we did a pilot program and that sort of stuff. Um, but GE it's pretty different, right? So you have to kind of front load a lot of that. So by the time it is ready to roll out, um, there's not a lot of surprises and you're pretty confident in it. Well, and you mentioned earlier too that um, for the design system, you're actually shipping daily. Yes. Can you, guide, can you give us a minute on that? Yeah. Okay. So we, d we do a number of things. When we, we, ship, we can ship whatever we want. And our design system at GE is, is out on GitHub. You can go look at it. You can do a pull request if you want to. Um, and that's super important to, to keep things open. And, and we can also, you can branch it too, right? If you find a component that's not doing what you want, you could break it off and do your own thing and try it out. Um, we also have a contribution model too. So for the folks that, um, you know, can pull it, modify it. You know, if, if there's a component that doesn't do exactly what they want, or they, you know, realize like it's not completely addressing a use case, go ahead and pull it and modify it and contribute it back, or make something new. Yeah. You know, and uh, that stuff can sit on the side, and we can sort of see how it's being used, and if it's getting enough traction, you know, we pull it in, and then it's part of the design system. Very cool, Courtney. You get to work across a lot of companies. You want to weigh in on this one? Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, you know, again, I'm sort of bringing a developer hat here, but you know, really being able, you hear a lot of these companies that de-risk development and, and releasing software by having everyone sort of push small incremental changes so that nothing fails in production so dramatically that you're losing millions of dollars. Right. I.e., somebody like Etsy, you know, fat 
fingering something and all of a sudden you've got you know serious repercussions but being able to incrementally push things out I think sort of the equivalent component needs to be pushed harder with sort of feature right like incremental feature pushes to customers more routinely you know from developers we sort of de-risk everything because we try to make micro releases so we do small incremental stories and so we can sort of evolve a product through a progression and we can start to test things so a couple of things that we've identified in order to de-risk and allow the product groups, meaning the developers, designers, and product managers, to put things out into the wild and segment them to particular customer groups so that they can get this wide breadth of testing. You know, someone said it before today, like, how do you go through 10,000 different ideas as quickly as possible? This is sort of how, right? You've got multiple segments of customers that you can push things out to. From the development side of things, you want to make sure you're isolating that so you don't clutter the code with like a million different test suites, right? So flagging ways in which to sort of tag code. You can also do that against design, right? Tagging different releases against sort of a design approach. That is sort of the mechanisms where it's sort of you're, you're bringing together, again, design and development and being able to release things in a quality fashion more routinely and putting into place the right systems, right? So there's both processes as well as tools to do the sort of flagging and releasing and then being able to assess these. You know, clearly these are sort of tests that need to have a course of time that they're out there in the wild and you need to do user analysis against that, the data that you're getting back. So knowing what's out there, when it went out, how long is it playing, what's the results, what failed, and then let's not put into place a lot of both design as well as code debt, being able to extract that stuff out and then only letting the winners really go out to the production release. So it's, it's really, again, it's sort of like having a process and a system that feels like everyone understands it, they have guardrails, and ergo, it sort of democratized the decision-making process of testing, right? Mm -hmm. We have a hypothesis. What's our hypothesis? How do we put it into play? Let's get it out there, let's assess it, and then make sure that we can roll it out so we don't clutter up our products and our, and our design. How many of you are from organizations that su support like small-scale, finite feature testing, like what we're talking about? We have some familiarity out there? Okay, okay, cool. Now, we were talking about AutoCAD earlier, and we were talking about one AutoCAD, but then you're talking about AutoCAD mobile. And so how are we gonna approach that from an experimentation and risk equation here? Take me through that. Yeah, so many people here probably never heard of Autodesk, but you've probably heard of AutoCAD, right? How many people have heard of AutoCAD? Pretty much everybody. <laughs> so I manage AutoCAD, and AutoCAD is the cash cow for Autodesk. How do you experiment in something that's that big, and if, it, if you lose the revenue from that, not only is that product at risk, but also the rest of the company, because all the other products that we're experimenting with in the market we can take some risks there because we have the revenue stream from AutoCAD to support us as we move forward. Um, but as the company is moving to subscription from perpetual licenses, we're having to think about these things like continuous delivery and how do you actually release things more frequently. Um, and a lot of our products are tied together with common um, tech stack elements that make it difficult to do this out of cadence. So there's lots of interdependencies that happen. So as we're moving to this one AutoCAD kind of point of view where we have a web, mobile, and desktop version of AutoCAD, we are taking mm -hmm. experimentation risks differently. So an example in our mobile product um, that's out of Tel Aviv is I went out there and I said, we, we need to have a culture of experimentation. We need to understand where our biggest risks are and how we can contribute to that AutoCAD story and actually contribute to that subscription revenue. What are the things that we can do that would actually improve our revenue more than other things that we would do? And we went through a whole workshop, we did our lean canvases, we, we, had, uh, we 
defined some experiments, and then I said, great, let's go ahead and start implementing that. Okay, that's gonna take us like a month or two months or three months. Mm -hmm. And I said, you've got two days. And they looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> and I said, seriously, what do you need to do this? Let's pull a developer in this room. Let's pull somebody from QA in this room and let's talk about, you know, we've just whiteboarded something we can experiment around. How could we actually build that thing by the end of the day? And they said, there's no way, we can't, we can't get approval. Okay, what's your roadblock? And what they said was they needed the head of the AutoCAD business to sign off on pulling development resources for four hours off of what they were doing. Meanwhile, they're working on something that might take six months to release. I need four hours, right? But yet, the fear is there at that level where they say, I don't know if I have the authority, the autonomy to go ahead and ask for that help. So I brought the head of AutoCAD in the room and I said, do we have your permission? And the world is your oyster. Get as many people as you need, do what you need to do. We're gonna, these two days are all about learning how to do something differently as a culture. Mm -hmm. So they couldn't believe it. We got the developers in the room. By the end of the day, they had something coded. And by the next morning, we were getting data in. And every break we had in that meeting, we looked at that data and said, what are we learning? What do we wanna make a decision around? We had a discussion as a team. And by the end of that second day, we pivoted, we made a business decision, a real business decision, not just a workshop kind of fake decision, and actually changed a direction that we were gonna go in, a design direction, as a result of this experiment that we did. And that was the first time, that kind of broke the chains for that team to be able to experiment. Then Big Boy AutoCAD seeing this happen, right? This is getting energy now. This We've been doing this for months and months. And they're starting to look at how do we do that? And it's a different problem. It's how do you release something in the wild for AutoCAD when you've got users that have been using it for 35 years, you've got you know mm -hmm. millions of lines of code, you're never targeted before or segmented. So we had to build infrastructure to actually figure out how to release something in the wild to like 1% of the user yeah. base. Um, and we're trying, we still haven't cracked that nut fully, but we're working on it. What are the different paths that you explored to release into the wild with a platform like that, like to try and get at that 1%? I know you haven't cracked the code yet, but can you share with us how you're approaching trying to crack that code? Yeah, so we, first of all, we built some customer councils so that we had continual yeah. access to users. So we didn't necessarily say, okay, we have to go now do a usability test or we're gonna go recruit for users. We, we had a pool of users that were already kind of pre-vetted. They've gone through their NDAs, they're available to us. And so we started practicing with that pool first awesome. to kind of figure out how can we actually build this muscle a little bit more. And we actually had to dig into some of the real archaic kind of duct tape and bailing wire stuff that holds the back end of our company together around actually how we do entitlements and how we ship product to people to actually figure out how to do this. And a lot of this work started driving more change beyond just what we were doing because yeah. we started to see all these other things that we can influence. And so it moved us from starting to think about us as just AutoCAD to us as Autodesk and it helped us learn ways that we can experiment. And so we did a couple of false doors and we did a little yep. Wizard of Oz stuff and we had you know QA people being support people and kind of testing some stuff out there um, as best as we could. And we have to pick and choose carefully though the pieces that we can right. put in the wild um, before it's ready. Right. And we've been able to now um, release in a little bit smaller increments um, and a little bit more frequently. We have some constraints due to the way our product is tied to other products in the company that we have to kind of be in lockstep with. Sure. But other than that, we've tried. 
Um, I think the, one of the learnings we had was the team itself, particularly the design team. In AutoCAD, you've got people that are subject matter experts. I was telling these guys, one guy on my team, father was a founder. So he's been with this company for 35 years. And he's used to thinking in a year. To him, a sprint is a year, right? <laughs> That's what you do every year. You do this thing, and you write a spec. And so to kind of unwind all of that thinking into something that says, I want you to put something out in a month or in a week is a really hard thing to do. And it takes just time to actually kind of rewire how people think about that stuff and how they feel comfortable um, not being, not having all the information. Yeah. Um, and what we, what we tried to do is say, you know, you, even when you release a product once a year, it's still an experiment. You right. don't know. Can you imagine the retro on a year-long sprint? <laughs> the retro would be three months. Yes. But this is AutoCAD, right? <laughs> AutoCAD's been around forever. Courtney, you want to so jump in? Yeah, I wanted to jump in a little bit because we, so we work with a variety of companies, everyone from like, you know, startups that just got their Series A or something all the way up to, you know, Fortune 500 companies. So one of the companies that's big, uh, you know, industry leader in fashion, um, I'll say, and they have a bunch of umbrella companies underneath them, and we've been working on their budgeting and allocation system. What we've sort of recognized is that one of the great ways to sort of disseminate information that's happening on the ground with sort of the individual contributors and make the work that they're doing hyper-valuable is providing this user research. So we have uh, one company we're working with right now, it's a bank, and they've got this user experience guy that we're working with to release things into the wild, and he's doing these assessments and he's basically giving these and shepherding them up in the company so that the stakeholders who have been making, you know, making these edicts, right, they're like, okay, for the next six months, do this thing. And he's sort of echoing back what actual users are saying in the form of these really well-designed PowerPoint decks, you know. Right, right, but, right. Which is a pain in the butt to, to do, so not the most efficient mechanism, but really, really valuable, you know, really like the verbiage of the customers that they are specifically targeting echoed back in a routine way. So they're weekly, we're running tests, right? And this stuff is getting echoed back in an email. It's like the most fun email that the, the C-suite gets to see. And then they clearly sort of start to see their objectives change based on this information. So it's digestible, it's discreet, it's continuous, and it's, it's really a great representation for sort of the people on the ground doing the work to represent the work that they're doing and the value of it and really how it's affecting the customers back to the people that effectively are you know, making these like larger decisions. So I'd say that's another thing, sort of like they can be segment to customers, but also like how do you echo that across the rest of the organization? And what I love about that is it talks about managing your own professional risk. If you're sound binding up or across on a regular basis, like we all talk about CYA all the time, but really you're bringing them into their process. So there are no surprises, right? If at anything there's inspiration and enlightenment as we go, right? Yeah, yeah. I, no, like I mean, I totally subscribe to the like broadcast everywhere, like all the time, right? And bring everybody into the process. Um, we're undergoing a major redesign of the Predicts design system right now, um, and I told everybody at the beginning of it, you're going to be tired of you're gonna, everybody's going to know what's going on. We're not going to have these sync up meetings anymore. And if you guys are bored of seeing me, then I've done my job, um, and I've done that by just you know every time there's we, I was talking to someone earlier about doing workshops, right? And within 24 hours, like the results are there, they're up publicly. You send out the email, you post it on you know, whatever, Yammer, or whatever else you're using, so it's there for everybody, yeah. and that keeps the conversation going, right? Yeah. And we also keep a Slack channel going, so here's what's going on, everybody, you know, come invite into the conversation. You got concerns, you got questions, you know, super lightweight, so you don't save it all to the end. Yeah, cool. Um, I have a question for the audience. I'm gonna, I'm gonna switch us a little bit to team management. Um, how many of you are in organizations where, um, for instance, design is in a, an enterprise silo, where you gotta go horse trading to get them for your next planning increment or sprints? Yeah. Okay. How many are in like fully autonomous um, uh, multidisciplinary teams? 
Okay, now, who feels that I'm not communicating in English and you can't raise your hand on anything I'm asking? <laughs> okay, okay, okay. You, you, you tell me what I need to clarify for you. How many are somewhere in the middle? Just trying to figure out how we're managing teams here. All right, so I'm really hoping that you guys have a great question to join me up here in just a few more minutes. But I want to ask our panel to weigh in about how do you organize teams um, in cross-disciplinary teams so we don't die by consensus. How are we making decisions to keep with the rapid pace of, of iterative design and learning? Um, Ken? Yep. So my actual design system team is really small. Like I have four designers and on with, with the design techs, I think we're at like 12 maybe. Oh, wow. So we can't do everything for everybody, right? So I, <laughs> I mean, it, it costs GE, right? Like anything building predicts, 12 of us can't do it. Um, so, you know, I look at building this community around across, you know, between aviation or power or, you know, APM is another one of our products, like, and finding the advocates around there so they can help us, you know, with this process and make these decisions um, and bringing them in to do that. Um, but I have to crowdsource it, otherwise, you know, we'll be the bottleneck for this stuff and it, you know, you sort of end up with this, you know, this team and your advocates across the company for, for these decisions that are made. Right. How do you crowdsource with um, efficiency, though? Crowdsourcing is great, but yeah. it kind of equalizes everybody. It's like, well, yeah. somebody's got to make the decision. Yeah, so right. my team still owns the decisions, right? And we've also made it clear, hey, if you don't want to follow our guidelines, then, you know, like, I've been talking with Power lately. I'm like, totally cool. If you guys have a valid reason for breaking off and doing your own thing, you can make your own subset of design guidelines and stuff like that. I get okay. that. Um, and likewise, if those start getting traction, yeah. we'll roll them back in. Okay, know? cool. Uh, Miss Amy, you've got 40 people in your design org and 90 across the board. Yes, and yes. That's, that's just in one division of the company. Oh, And okay. so the company organizes itself in lots of different ways, but within my world, we are in essence a centralized design organization, but we embed interaction designers within the scrum teams. So for the most part, they're assigned to a product, and they support one, one scrum team. We used to have them cover more than one scrum team, and we've ha had to advocate um, pretty strongly within my peer group, my core team for AutoCAD to say, for example, you know, spreading the designer too thin is, is impacting our quality. And so, and yeah. who's the, the product owner in this triad? And how are we actually delivering this process mm -hmm. in a way that is gonna get us the right outcome uh, at the end? And so we were able to make some adjustments, which was some compromises on the dev side in terms of um, how we have our ratios in the right way so that we can actually deliver um, quality designs and actually be part of that process. But we have other disciplines within design that operate more in that central org. So we've got a learning team or a content team, visual design, mm -hmm. research, and they are a little bit more, more like a service model. And uh, just recently I made a change within my learning team organization where I took some of those uh, individual contributors that are more responsible for more of the emerging products like web and mobile um, and had them embed a little bit more closely within the actual interaction design team because I wanted to kind of experiment with a structure that will enable us to cover more of an end-to-end -end experience for customers and how do we actually impact the experience of onboarding and actually maximizing the value and basically the engagement if you think of it like yep. a funnel. Yep. And uh, we're actually now, it's changing the whole nature from them being writers to them thinking about strategy and what are they actually going after. And so it's proving to be a good experiment within how we structure mm -hmm. that might then scale to something like AutoCAD. And right. so generally, right. um, we have some variety in how we operate. Right. 
And earlier I talked about that HIG and how we're building sort of, we call it Orion, but a, a software a UI toolkit for our web products that actually take that kind of end to end. Mm -hmm. And in that case, that was built within AutoCAD. So the design team said, we need to work better with a development organization. We want to learn how to code. We need to improve that efficiency of how we communicate. And so we created job descriptions, we call them experience engineers, that are basically like halfway, one foot in the software development world and one foot in the design world, and they actually um, are transforming how we do design and how we work with development teams, and that started in our web organization. And so we have different things that we try to experiment on to see what works, and then we try and bring that to scale if, we, if it's proving to be successful. Yeah. But I also think it's not a one-size-fits-all. You know, yeah. whether you're um, more of a service org or you've got a large enough team that you can distribute, you want that cross-pollination that you get, and so we try and move people through and rotate, and um, I know, Courtney, you had an example of some rotation, I think. Yeah, it's interesting, and I want to, like, support what you just said. There is no one-size-fits-all. Like, <laughs> one benefit I get is, like, watching how there are lots of different sizes. Um, but one of the things that, yeah, I think... Um, any, you know, effectively we are all now managing really smart people, right? And the thing that we are struggling with is like resource constraint, right? So people are valuable, we see their value, you know, they also sort of like are constrained in their time. Um, one of the things that we've tried to figure out is where people are appropriate and when, meaning how do you make people's time most efficient? And what we've recognized with teams is that there's sort of two components of it. You know, we do a lot of test-driven development, pair programming. We sort of pragmatically pair, so we're not like 100% pair programming all the time. But our design team, right? So we brought design sort of internal to Carbon 5 around eight years ago. We worked with the D school with the design thinking, and so sort of we saw how much more valuable and how much better products we were releasing when we brought the design internal to mm -hmm. our teams. And then we did the same thing with product. What we saw, though, was the designers were like, how come the developers get to work with each other? They have hard problems to solve. We have hard problems to solve. How come they get to pair and we don't? So we saw this thing happen where we were like, oh, there's an appropriate time for designers to actually pair with one another. And when it's, it's early on, it's when innovation and sort of you're exploring an idea and like you need to come up with a lot of ideas, pair up designers. And then we also started this net effect where designers that were working on different teams, and in our company that's also across different companies, they would actually pair up and sort of be like, oh, you know, I did this thing with this other company. It was super effective. Let's try it here. So you sort of got this cross-pollination. And I see that same thing happen. I think traditionally organizations, and this is a lot of companies we work with, they, they silo, right? They're like, mm -hmm. man, allocations is way easier if I can just kind of put people here and I know that they're going to stay there, so I'm just going to do that thing. Problem is, developers, designers, really talented people that are very smart and very creative are going to get annoyed at having to do the same thing all the time. And they keep yeah. hearing these like inklings of like, oh, the, da the data team's doing what? And they're using what pipeline? And I want, can I go over? So what are the ways in which you can kind of have people be a little bit more flexible in the organization? It does a couple things. It does make allocations a little bit tricky, but it unlocks a lot of creativity and unlocks a lot of learning across the organization. Some organizations do it where they have like a segment of time. I know one company, they basically take a two-week chunk and they're like, hey, developers, you guys get two weeks. Pick your team. You just get to go sit with that team for a while. And it is great for sort of knowledge share. There's onboarding costs there, but mm -hmm. effectively what you're getting out of it is, is you know, much more higher quality in the long run. Um, but then there's also companies where we've sort of, you know, basically broken down the silos. We've been like, you know, okay, great. You had like two teams of four sort of segmented across like iOS and Android. They're one team now, right? They have one scrum. They have one backlog yeah. they're working yeah. from. They have one designer they're working from, one PM. That PM maybe goes across. Um, but, you know, they sort of get an opportunity to work on multiple things and sort of hear what others are working on. So I think there's, yeah. again, there's not one size fit all, but I do think 
that, you know, having sort of this knowledge, and this is something we also talked about, you're, you know, you are fueled by these people that are working on the ground. They have really good ideas, letting them have the opportunity to share them with one another and the knowledge that they're gaining. And then additionally, sort of being recognized for that, I think is really important. Yeah, yeah. And I would say, you don't have to be a developer to go off two weeks and like learn something. We'll do that with, um, we, don't, we don't keep our, our UX talent in the silos that kind of like how we organize the strategy talent, which I'm on that team. Um, but somebody that might spend a lot of time in financial services, they say, well, actually, I'm really interested in what's going on with this e-commerce platform of clients. I want to go work on there because, honestly, I get a little bit more creative, you know, mojo that way, but I'm going to bring it back this way. So we even swap out our dis different disciplines, just not developers in that same way. Okay, audience, here we go. Going to ask them one more question, and then that's when we get to the fishbowl part, okay? So you guys have about four minutes to think of your questions while we're talking. Everybody, everybody with me? All right. So... Super easy question. Not really. <laughs> we're designing at scale. We're working in big, large organizations that are shipping frequently. We're servicing those, working with them to build out, build out, build out methodologies. How do you really make a big organization lean? Mm. Ken, I'm putting you on the hot seat <laughs> first. Well, how I made GE lean? <laughs> Personally, no. I mean, you know, like you said, one side just does not fit all. So we have to try a bunch of different stuff. And, you know, what's worked recently for me is getting folks together, you know, in a, a workshops, like quick, short, just facilitating the dialogue to get folks together so you can move quickly to make decisions. We are in the middle of this redesign uh, for the design system. In January, we had nothing, you know, and I did a series of five workshops over the course of five weeks. And on the, what, seventh week? We had a design, and we were good, and yeah. everybody had seen it, and they were good to go. And they've been part of And it. we are rolling that out, you know, we're planning on uh, early July. So yeah. within six months, we went from nothing to, like, you know, and that's going to hit all the Predicts apps. You know, they'll have to consume it, of course, but yeah. Um, so fairly quick for a large organization, I think. Okay. Uh, and Lightning, on the other hand, also was seven months, you know, start to finish, but very okay, much the same process. Okay, Salesforce. Yeah. Okay, Amy? I think in my <laughs> experience... How did you make oh, Autodesk yeah. lean? <laughs> How did I make it lean? Um, a large part of it is culture. There is uh, a huge amount of work, I think, that I've invested in in trying to actually breed this culture uh, that risk is okay, that it's okay to fail. And what I found is that the executives totally understand this, right? Uh, we used the analogy earlier about quality also, right? Nobody ever says, I want to ship shit, right? Yes, let's go ahead and do that. But, and the people on the ground know, they're, they know that they don't want to ship something what they don't feel proud about. But somewhere in the middle, something gets lost where that date or that milestone that they feel they have to hit kind of takes over yeah. their thinking. And I think the same thing applies to lean. And it's about how do you understand risk? People want to learn. If you're an executive, you want an organization that is super efficient at learning, regardless if you understand lean or not. Yeah. Right? You know that fundamentally in your core. And so I think for me, it's about, given I'm in the middle layer, how do I actually create an environment for my teams and for the development orgs and work across my triad of the development and product and customer pieces to sort of build um, a little bit more comfort that they nothing bad will happen, right? And that's okay. So I think that's one yep. part. I think the other part in a company as big as Autodesk and a product that's as um, old as AutoCAD is we had to actually invest in some infrastructure. It didn't come for free that you can actually push something quickly to the wild. There was, you know, 35 years of 
tech and all sorts of behaviors and right. processes in place that we had to kind of break through a little bit. And that took some investment and some selling. And so there were a lot of transparency that needed to happen around why this is a good thing and getting the buy-in. So there was a lot of salesmanship and marketing we had to do to kind of make that piece happen. Right. So those are two big things. And then process, you know, whether it's design thinking or just sort of understanding sort of the basic fundamentals and the mechanics. You know, just like if you're a chef, you know, you, you want to know how to chop, you want to know how to saute, and when you do that, you can build amazing recipes. And so for us, it's how do you get those pieces of your process in place so you can understand what are those key um, techniques that you want to have in your toolkit, and how do you make that pervasive in an organization yeah. so that then you're empowering people to actually take those chances when they feel safe and when there's that yeah. environment that supports them. Yeah. And Courtney, you had a really good point in our in our little pre-meeting about truly understanding what is it the who is it the root of your organization. Can you give us a couple minutes? Yeah, of that? I think okay. um, you know for me it sort of comes down to really understanding that at the core of your company, like focus on the humanity of it. I think something that we're seeing is a shift across really the world. We are moving from factory systems, industrial systems to knowledge-based <laughs> systems. Right? Knowledge workers are the core of your company now ways in which to empower them to accelerate your company has a lot to do with sharing empathy with them and sort of understanding who you are as a company and then knowing how to sort of round yourself out, if you will. So for example, you know, we actually work with Autodesk. Autodesk is a very technically driven company. Salesforce, very sales driven company. GE, very technical driven company. Internet of Things, you know. You can work with companies though that are really focused on design, right? They're very design-led. So knowing sort of if you have a company that is really focused on that thing, it is the core of your company, but acknowledging that in those companies, if it's a de developer-driven organization, so Facebook, right, very developer-driven, harder for designers to feel that they have a voice, a place, <laughs> and sort of the autonomy to make decisions. Yeah. And so really kind of bolstering that up, really giving them an ability for those to sort of understand them and kind of have a shared empathy. And I think this also, it's sort of like across skill sets, I would say, or disciplines, but also say it's sort of top down. I was telling them a story, you know, CTOs, I know the CTO of PayPal used to do this, fly around to the different constituencies, right, his working groups across the country, which were huge, it was like in India, all over the place, to just have lunch with the developers. Managers were not allowed, no managers allowed, these are individual contributors, and just have lunch with them. So you would just set up lunches at all these different places. And really having the understanding, I think, for the C-suite to really get down and be like, I have all these ideas, why is it taking you guys so long to do this? And then hearing why. Why are there problems there? And then using that to really facilitate changes in the organization to make it more efficient. Um, so I think it's, you know, we are, we gotta recognize the humanity of the companies that we're working with now and sort of unlocking the talent that we have that's sort of latent there and then getting all of that talent to really have empathy for one another's, you know, risks and, you know, fears and stress yeah. levels and, you know, the management team, like just sort of like that shared empathy, I think is, is something we sort of miss out on a little bit and we're like, process is gonna solve it, agile yeah. and all these, and yes, those help for sure with communication and a lot of important things, but just really sort of like the human component, I feel like yeah. it's, it needs to be there. Beautifully said. All right, who wants to come join the fishbowl? Don't all rush the stage at once. <laughs> if, come on, y'all. If not, I gotta keep talking. Come on up, you get to have my seat. It's like, oh man, I wasn't here for the intros. <laughs> yes, you get to moderate your question all with right. the panel, all right? And then I will have to kick you off, but. Sounds great. Right. Um, well, I hope my question isn't an anomaly. I'm coming from a cultural arts institution uh, in, based in Brooklyn. And um, a lot of this, I, I feel, definitely applies to our, our team. 
Um, what I want to throw out is, I mean, our product is um, artists and their art. We're not in control of their art. We present them as artists, and, and we're trying to choose artists that will draw audiences to come see them. Um, so I'm just kind of wondering if it's, if, if like, I guess what your thoughts are on, I mean, we can't, we want to know what our audience thinks and what their experience is, but we don't necessarily get to choose what, what the artists uh, do, and we don't want to go down the route of, like, presenting popular, not necessarily popular art. We, we're trying to fulfill the, the goals of art, um, artistic high quality, as well as something that people buy tickets to come see. So I, just throwing that out is, what if you're not as in control of your product, or um, you've got less to say, or maybe you're negotiating between a product maker? I don't know if that applies to a design team, but I'd just be interested in your thoughts on how you might apply what you've learned uh, to my particular situation. I'll, I'll take first. I think one of the words you said that really resonated with, we, with me was goals, right? So trying to understand what it is, if you're a school or a gallery or whatever, what is your goal? Is it to breed great talent? Is it to support a community? Is it to make money, right? Trying to really tie and anchor your goal and, your and build a strategy behind that, right? So you may not be able to necessarily control exactly what every every designer, every artist, every person creates, but you can actually create a culture that supports that goal by having values and a mission and building, you know, the kind of um, methods in your, in the time you spend with these people that actually creates a pattern of expectation and behavior that would change people who are interested in working with you and people who aren't interested in working with you, people who want to join your school or don't. Right? I think that's, to me, one of the key pillars, I would say, where um, when you think about like a lean canvas, a lot of that's anchored in trying to understand sort of that goal, strategy, who you're going after, why, why, answering that why question, why are you here? Um, and so I, w I would start with that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I also think it's almost a strange opportunity. You know, one thing that you get, and we see this a lot when you do user tests with enough people, where you get these ancillary sort of ideas that come out of it. And I think one of the things that sort of you get to play with a little bit here is to maybe have a core concept that, that sort of is a focus to bring sort of the masses in, but almost sort of educating the masses on what are, you know, what are the discovery elements to this thing that we're bringing you in on, and then ways in which to use their interest in that to sort of like bolster more discovery process of, of something that they might not have originally thought was gonna be the experience of their day. But I think, you know, people more and more are feeling like they're getting just fed the thing that they are asking for and actually kind of want the different thing. So it sort of presents this opportunity, and I think it's, it's a little bit playing around with like, you know, how can you optimize the discovery of these ancillary, you know, artist elements or, you know, curations versus sort of like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna have the big draw, right, and that's gonna be the line out the door, but then we want them to sort of discover these other people and ideally use that core draw to get more attention to sort of these ancillary components. I would, I would uh, echo Amy's comments about the mission statement and the vision, right, and making sure, you know, the artists that you're pulling together kind of understand what your organization's goals are. And I'm not sure how you're curating the stuff right now, you know, but I, I suspect the folks that would probably buy into that would gravitate closer, and the folks that maybe wouldn't click with would go off and do something else, and you'd sort of kind of self-organize around that. And then I, I really dig your point of kind of, that gives you also kind of once you get your core going there to throw in some extra stuff, right? And you can see where you need to adjust from there, right? Maybe you're doing a show or whatnot, and you know you put something in there that maybe doesn't belong a little bit, or you, you have some hunch about, you know, and that would give you a chance to see kind of the measure, right, and adjust you know, along the way, and maybe that would even feed back in. You know what? Maybe as a group, 
we need to adjust our mission statement. You know, we're going this way now because of this. Yeah. So. I have a question for you. How do you measure? Mm. That's <laughs> a great question. We don't. It's like if it, it's really, yeah, did people show up yeah. or not? But in some cases, there are poor attended shows, but we validate just the fact we did it because of the type of artist. Like this dancer deserved to have this premiere just looking at the canon of the evolution of dance and where dance is in a contemporary moment. So, but there, yeah, there isn't the same as I guess a nonprofit, the same level of metrics uh, that would help us then look at a future show and why we would present an artist versus not. You have Google Analytics on art. This no, we should. But this has come up, actually, Tomer Sharon, who works at WeWork now, he was at Google for a while, and he does user research, right? And he has all these, like, harebrained, awesome ideas about how to do research, particularly now that he's at WeWork, in physical environments, right? Yes. How do you do this coupling of, like, research and data ga gathering in physical environments and, and down to the level of, like, the cafe versus the office versus the, like, mm -hmm. conference room, that sort of thing? But he's got these great things that he'll, like, you know, use, what are the Amazon, you know, push buttons? Little so he, like, hacked thing? those yeah. into you know, question, just like post-it note or maybe a little bit better design and then just like a push button that's like, I enjoyed this or I didn't. So ways in which you can sort of hack in gathering data in a physical, I liked this dancer, I liked this, you know. I think there's, again, you know, find someone in your organization. I love doing this too. There's always somebody in an organization that is a hacker and they go home and they like grab a Raspberry Pi with their kids and they do something. Just get that person to like do some stuff for the gap data gathering in your space. Awesome. Goals, discovery, push buttons. <laughs> thank you so right. much. You can have my job. You're doing great. Right. <laughs> thank, you. thank you. I want my, I, so I'm out of a WeWork office in D.C. I want the button that says more whiteboards, please. So if you could help me escalate I will, I that. Will, yes, he's thank rolling you. this out. All right. Who else? Come on up. Am I getting double the feedback because I have two microphones? Thank you for being brave number two. There you go. Welcome. Hello. Introduce yourself, please. Oh, sure. Uh, my name is Linda Kaiser. I work at Vanguard. Awesome. And uh, I'm actually trying to help roll out some of these lean concepts to the enterprise. Uh, but one of the things, actually, I wanted to ask specifically, Amy, you mentioned something, but then I wanted to get everyone's perspective. Um, you mentioned uh, democratizing design. And that was very interesting because um, our design professionals um, uh, take a lot of pride in their design knowledge, experience, and education. And I'm not sure that they would be comfortable with democratizing design. So I'm sort of just curious about how you balance the need to let, you know, more people participate um, while also, you know, kind of like respecting and not diminishing that uh, experience and so yeah. on. That's a good question. I mean, designers have um, powerful egos that need to be fed continually. <laughs> um, that makes them fun and interesting <laughs> to be around. <laughs> I am one, I am one, room? so I know what that's like. Um, so I think for us it's about um, the little d version of design is where we're democratizing, right? We're sort of getting people to contribute to a creative process, getting people to have an equal voice in and to be part of what happens at the start of a process as opposed to having what we used to do in Waterfall where it's somebody down the line, how do you empower a developer to build something if they have no idea why they're building it, who they're building it for, what that experience was like. But we all, each of us in an organization, um, regardless of your discipline, bring something special and unique that you are the expert in and you are only going, nobody's ever going to be able to, in a workshop, then be able to operate the way that you operate as a designer. And so it's about kind of redefining what that word design means 
And I think what we try and say is everyone is a designer, and then we have experts that actually play a particular role, and we're not asking anybody in the organization to do that. They have their job, you have your job. But we're trying to create a conversation around cre creation and innovation and customer insight and things that actually make us better. And that we all want, I think, as humans to collaborate and to partner. And I think once we start getting into that space where we're able to collaborate and have a dialogue and we can actually see our idea enhanced or our direction enhanced, um, that's better for everybody. But the mechanics of doing design and the sort of special sauce that everybody brings, only those people are going to bring. They were trained, that's their, that's their gift that they bring to the company. And so um, most, in my experience, um, I think that people move through that pretty quickly once they have some experiences and you don't even have to label it, right? It's just we're gonna create this experience where we're all gonna work together on something and you know, when you talk to your C-level people, you might call it democratizing design, but, <laughs> you know. Little I don't, D, I don't little, little D, D design. little D. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think the only other thing I would add, and I think that's a really good point and a very good question. <laughs> um, so yeah, we have a set of designers at Carbon 5, they work together, we have like design studio, all of this, and one of the things that always gets brought up is like, what is my portfolio, right? You know, it's like, we're releasing things as a company, as a team for these organizations that we work with, and it's a collaborative net effect. And I think you do lose a little bit of ownership of a specific you know, design or brand or whatever. But what I feel like I've seen sort of develop out of this, and it's a huge need at organizations, having someone that can start to move into, I would say, like leadership or management. Leadership, I sort of see as two things. One can be specific leadership against a skill, meaning that they are just a really fantastic at distilling down really big organizational needs into something that is visually compelling and has a narrative against it versus sort of the managing of teams and leveling people up. I think both things, there isn't really a school that you can go to, and we were sort of talking about this, like there's not really management schools in the way that we need management at companies now, mm -hmm. right? Again, we're sort of moving outside of this notion of like, okay, we're like a, a factory, an industry, like this is sort of how you move up in management, and you take some classes and you get, like we really do have sort of a dearth of kind of like, what are the skills you need to progress? But I think there are specific people, and we have this, one designer at Carbon 5, and she's just incredible at leveling up designers, both with the companies we work with, but also internally. It's just like, you know, how do you really sort of negotiate a room full of people and facilitate ideas, yeah. right? And that's something where it's like, she see, that's her superpower. She sees it, she owns it, and like totally gets respected by the team for it and is really known for that thing. It's very cool. It's very cool. So, I mean, I think, you know, largely within a lot of companies, design is still seen as a black box. Right, and you'll show up with your thing, your shiny thing at the end, and be like, "Here it is!" Right, and you're making it way harder on yourself. And a lot of that is ego. Like I, I remember being that way. Like I've been a designer my whole life, right? It's like, no, it's not perfect yet. I'm not gonna let it out. And you have to kind of change the muscle memory on that a little bit to keep people comfortable in, you know, in realizing that's okay to share when you're not comfortable, and the value in, in opening up this conversation and the whole process and showing people how it's done, uh, is gonna pay dividends, right? You're gonna get different ideas, uh, you know, from an engineer or you know, someone on the business side or something like that you probably wouldn't have thought of ahead of time until it's after the fact. So I think maybe in terms of getting some of those folks, you know, loosened up a little bit would be like, you're gonna be stronger for it, we're gonna be stronger as an organization, the products are gonna be better is, is kind of the messaging around that. I'll just build on that one little point, which is I think it's also about helping designers understand the, imp the impact that they're creating. Mm -hmm. I think uh, oftentimes designers think about they left their mark, right? I can yeah. see my creative thing because I made it blue instead of pink or whatever the thing is that or rounded right. corners <laughs> or flat versus drop shadow, yard, yeah. whatever yeah. their thing is, right? They've got their signature thing and they want to do it. 
But I think oftentimes designers, developers, they don't really understand the true impact of the work that they do to the bottom line, to what executives care mm -hmm. about. And the more we can help our individual contributors understand their value and why that, that thing that they're so good at, their superpower, is critical to us getting to the business result that we need that keeps us all funded and happy, um, I think that makes a huge difference as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah I want to jump in on this. Um, who practices dual track agile? Okay, a, a, a little bit of dual track agile is w during the product development process, you as a product manager are bringing your tech lead with you the whole time. So there's iterative and collaborative learning and opportunities to tweak and also the full line of communication um, is succinct and pure the whole way. So there's nothing lost in translation in dual track agile. And what we did at Capital One when resources were were big enough because we didn't have people embedded in scrum teams all the time. We would have our designers, especially in a big initiative, not just come in with like, oh, it's time for that UX girl. No, they were with us from the very beginning, helping to d define the empathy guides. And then with us during all those interviews with the tech teams as they were trying to code and develop. And when you get like a front end UX person that can actually get in there and sit and do code, it's like the most beautiful like cacophony of skill sets and conversation going on. But I just, I just wondered, have you had success with that? Have you talked about that at Vanguard even, Linda? I mean, a anything, anything like this? Well, you're on, you're on, yeah. Well, so we haven't, we have not done that um, yeah. at, at Vanguard, but, but we've definitely, you know, been trying to, in our lean experiments that we've done, we've had the designers in. We actually, our interesting finding was, you know, we, we have different roles even within design, right? So we have an information architect and then we have like the graphic designer yeah. and, then, and, and to figure out how to create a two pizza team when all of these people had these very siloed expertise skill, even the, you know, the writer, so yeah. we all can't write, but this person can write, you know, and, and it, it's very, it, that's been sort of our it's challenge. It's such a good point, because we sort of, I saw this <laughs> happening with like full stack development, right? Like yes. people that could work across like, you know, with, whether it's a mean stack or whatever, but people that could sort of just like swing the whole way. Yeah. And you see it in design now. You yeah. see people that are really into like user research and being able to distill down yeah. a bunch of information, they care to do that, all the way to the person that's like, really interested in like, no, the padding's not right there, sit down, we're gonna fix that. Right. So yeah, I think you're right, like, it's hard to find, and people are like, the unicorn, the, the unicorn. what I, yeah, <laughs> doesn't <laughs> exist, <laughs> totally doesn't <laughs> exist. It's again, it's like, who do you need when, and then how do you sort of share the knowledge and the communication, as you said, sort of like down the pipe, it's, yeah. it's tricky. Amy, did you have anything, or? I was just gonna say, we do practice dual track agile, and a lot of times it really just comes down to continuous discovery. Yeah. So you've got a discovery track and a delivery track, Sometimes you call it learn versus earn, right? And you're basically trying to think about how you can create um, bandwidth to do that discovery while you're delivering. And so I think that's the biggest challenge that teams I encounter face when they we try and help them become more proficient at dual track is you know, it's not just the designer or the researcher that's gonna go, or the product manager that's gonna go do that discovery. You need the team with you. It's a much richer experience if you've got somebody from the tech side listening to that customer say that magical thing that they just said that they are gonna see through a different lens than you'll be able to ever see it from as a designer, so. That's great. Do you mind if I, because I, this dual You've track. got the microphone, go ahead. Yeah. Thank you. So, so this, actually this is the first time I've heard that term dual track agile, and um, it's actually very interesting to yeah. me just um, because it, it sort of makes it, like we, I guess maybe we have practiced it a little bit, but we've been, we have been challenged with getting, you know, a, a fully formed product team 
doing both experimentation as well as you know the um, building the MVPs and then maintaining those over time. Like we just haven't gotten that far yet. So I'm, I'm wondering actually if this dual track agile um, would help with that. And it, it might actually even answer the question that I was thinking about too. Have you guys seen the, um, I guess the graphic that shows sort of like um, design thinking that rolls into lean, that rolls yeah. into agile? Now it has like, you know, you know what I'm talking like about? It's no man on acid. Like, there's like this, yeah. and, then there's this thing, and then there's like little loops inside it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like orange, yellow, and blue. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So I guess, but so what I'm looking for is, do you have like, when I see that chart, it, it sort of bothers me though, because it still looks a little bit like design is up front. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like I, I wanted to hear like your comments on that. <laughs> exactly. It looks yeah. like a what? And, I'm, it, but that and to me, that's why me. dual track okay. agile, that's yeah. the notion that it's trying to break, right? Yeah. And because any of those, all, I think one thing I'll say is all these processes all fit together, right? There's not like you're doing agile or you're doing lean or you're doing dual track or you're doing name your thing, right? All of this is like a toolkit and you've got to think about what is the right and I think dual track agile helps us figure out how to be conscious of how we are doing discovery continually throughout so that we try and push away from um, a situation where no matter how short your cycle is, two weeks, one week, one day, you're still doing your learning at the end what we're or at the beginning, right? What we're trying to do is figure out how we figure out whatever your cycle is, figure out how you can and what does that mean? What does learning look like within your context? And so, um, and how are you actually going to allocate resources? Yeah, that for your planning method to use that. I feel like I'm cutting in and out. I, wait, it's a sign from above. We're over time. <laughs> are we? Oh, yeah. Are we? Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Would you like to finish? Would you like to finish your thought? Ta-da. Okay. Okay. I was gonna say I'm gonna have to let you have the last word. However, if anybody's interested in this conversation, I believe we're gonna be hanging out a little bit, and we can go out there in the atrium and talk. Um, despite the anguish of all my imaginary friends here waiting to get on stage, we do have to call it. <laughs> but thank you so much for your time. I hope you uh, take some tidbits back home with you. Thanks.